Good morning, City Light. How are y'all doing today? Doing well? Lost an hour of sleep, but this is the 11 o'clock. I can tell y'all are rested. You guys are ready and excited for God's Word. I can just feel it from y'all. For those of you guys that don't know me, my name is Andrew. I'm one of the guys on staff with our college ministry team here. It is a privilege to be here with you guys to get to lead us uh, through God's Word together this morning. And we've been studying through the book of Hebrews, and I'm super stoked to pick up in our passage today. Uh, But I want to start by asking you guys a question. I'm going to need some crowd participation here. Uh, So by a show of hands, how many people here have had braces? Show of hands. All right, so I got to start with a little confession, all right? I kind of cut y'all because for me, it's not in the past tense, but I actually got these bad boys on about 10 days ago, okay? So I don't have to tell y'all. Yeah, right, we're excited, we're excited. I knew I I could feel the energy in this room. so you, I don't have to tell you guys, braces, not fun, right? Now, another quick show of hands. Uh, who here is into the Enneagram or has at least heard of it? Show of hands. All right, any, we got some fans in here. Anybody? There you go, okay. Uh, so personality assessment. I'm a type seven. So what you need, what you need, yeah, sevens love sevens, come on. Uh, so what you need to know about sevens is we are called the enthusiast. We're highly optimistic. We're highly hopeful. We can always find a silver lining in any and all circumstances. It's just who we are. Any struggle, there's a silver lining, right? That's who we are. So for me, getting braces, no big deal, right? No sweat. So after I leave the orthodontist, being that I'm an optimist, I'm a seven, and I'm new to this whole braces thing, where would I go other than my favorite restaurant, Chipotle? right? My first stop leaving the orthodontist. I got tortillas stuck in my teeth. I got rice and beans everywhere. My mouth is so sore. And it was in that moment that all hope, all optimism went out the window. Like, I'm cool. I'm cool being a 26-year-old brace face. I'm not cool with not enjoying Chipotle for a year, okay? Like, that broke me. My wife will tell you, you've been together for over a year and a half now, always hopeful, always a silver lining. I was a little baby for three days, okay? I was so discouraged. And, and as I drove back from the orthodontist, I actually started to ask myself the question, why am I doing this? Like, is it really worth it? My pain, my struggle, my frustration led me to asking the question, is this really worth it? Maybe I'll just turn back right now. I mean, it's not too late. Maybe you can take these things off, right? And then as I began to see my close friends and family, and they saw me with my braces for the first time, everybody shared a couple things. And the first thing that people said was, dude, Andrew, that sucks. Like, not going to sugarcoat it. That sucks. We're just going to keep it real with you, right? And the second thing that everybody said is, Andrew, it's going to be worth it. Like, your present frustration, your present pain pales in comparison to what lies ahead. And this assurance from my community, from those that love me, gave me a hope to press on and know that the hope that I have now and the hope that I have in the future is worth the present pain, right? Now, similarly, in our passage today, the author of Hebrews, he knows that these followers of Christ are struggling and they're facing some real pain. And like me, they're considering turning back and they need some assurance. And the author of Hebrews gives them this encouragement. He says, let us draw near to God together. As God's family, let us draw near to him and hold fast our hope and city light. For those of us who have trusted in Jesus, we're given this same encouragement today. No matter where you're at, no matter what you're going through, Jesus is better, Jesus is worth it, and we get to draw near to him together as a family. Amen? So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive into God's word together. Uh, Father, I just thank you that I can call you Father. Uh, You're not distant, you're near, you're here with us, your spirit is moving. 
God, I just pray for everybody in this room, including myself, Father, that your spirit, you would just meet us in a new way here today. God, that these truths would go from uh, facts we can ascribe to, uh, to our true hope, that, that we cast all of our cares and our hope in you, Jesus. Uh, so praise you that it's true. Love you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to dive into our text, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. If you guys would read with me, we'll start there. It says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast this confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So our first point we draw from the text, let us draw near together. So we see this encouragement, right? We can draw near to God together. We have this unwavering hope and we can actually stir up one another to love and good works. But verse 19, our passage begins with therefore. So, so it's this transition statement that everything, all these encouragements and, and assurances are built upon what the author said before this. Now, the passage before this can be summed up in one verse right before this. Hebrews 10.10 says this, We've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So the reason that anybody can draw near to God, draw near to Jesus, is because we've been sanctified or set apart or made righteous or brought into relationship with God through, what does the text say? Showing up to church on Sunday? Nope, not it, right? Uh, through reading your Bible and being a really good person? No, that's not it either, is it? Hebrews 10.10 says we can draw near to God through the offering of the body of Christ. So, so the reason we have these assurances today, the reason we can draw near to God as his family is because our Savior's sacrifice is sufficient for our sins. Now try saying that when you got braces 10 days ago, right? <laughs> our Savior's sacrifice is sufficient for our sins, but that's the foundation that, that all of these promises are built upon today. And then read just the first part of verse 19 with me. We'll read the rest of it after the therefore. Since this is true, since his sacrifice is sufficient, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, confidence. All right, so we're going to pause there, and we're going to remember, we don't see this in the Bible, but according to church history, the great high priest, aka the top dog priest in all of the land, the most holy dude, would go into the holy of holies, the most holy presence of God, one time a year. And as church history records it, it's said that this most holy man in all of the land would tie a rope around his leg before he entered into God's presence. And many of you have heard this before. Why would they tie that rope around their leg? Well, they would do it because they had such a reverence and awe for God's holy. They know how holy and righteous God is. And that reverence led them. If we had one sinful thought, the most holy man, one sinful thought in the presence of God, he would drop dead, and his homies for sure weren't going to go in and get him, right? If the most holy guy was going to drop dead, they had a rope on his leg to pull him out. That's how holy they knew God to be, right? Now, why do I bring this up? Well, if you've got a rope tied around your leg, when you're going into the presence of God, you're not showing me you have a lot of confidence, right? Like, I don't think I'm going to follow you in. you got a rope tied around your leg? I'm like, you ain't confident, okay? Verse 19, we have confidence, right? 
we have confidence. So my question is, what changed, right? Like, how did people go from dreading God to delighting in God confidently? Well, verse 19 tells us we have this confidence by the blood of Jesus. So so Jesus' blood, that's how sufficient his payment was. All of our sin, all of the sin of the world, all of our brokenness, all of our mistakes, because of Jesus' blood, because his death truly covered all of our sin, we can come to God confidently. So, so it takes people, we see in our passage, it takes people from dreading the presence of God to delighting in the presence of our heavenly Father. Isn't that beautiful? Like we get to come before the God of the universe confidently. Isn't that crazy? So God made this way. Sinful people, holy God, made a way through his son, Jesus, the only sacrifice. And then our author goes on to give us, hey, in light of that, three exhortations, encouragements, because that's true. So you look at verse 22, we see our first exhortation, encouragement. It says, let us draw near to God with a full assurance of faith. Encouragement number one. Okay, room full of probably mostly church people, I would assume. I would imagine that if I were to sit up here and tell you guys, hey, Jesus has covered all of your sins, past, present, and future, forever, all covered by Jesus, most of you would nod along and say, yes, Andrew, I agree, I've heard that, I don't know how many times, right? So, so my question for you guys, and for myself, as I was praying into this, is since that's true, like since we're truly made righteous and blameless by our Savior's sacrifice, do we enter, do we approach God with this full assurance of faith? Like is that actually how we come? to our heavenly father? Do we actually have this, this humble but confident approach to say, God, I know that I'm forgiven by your grace, so I'm gonna come to you. I don't have to dredge you, but I'm gonna delight in you because I'm forgiven. Like, is that how you approach God in, in prayer? You come before him. It's not about your past struggles or your present struggles or your future fears, but you can come to God confidently with assurance because his grace has covered you in Jesus. Amen? It's beautiful. So our religion is going to tell us, hey, you mess up, you better fear God's presence. If you struggle, you better work harder to get right with God again. That's what religion says. But our relationship with Jesus says that despite your failures, past and future, you're forgiven and God welcomes you because it's all about his grace. You can't earn it. You can't lose it. And this passage shows us, let us draw near together. In light of that, we're a family. God adopted us as his children. Uh, yet, yes, he saved us. We have a relationship with him, but he also gave us this relationship with each other to encourage one another, to point us to these truths, and it's beautiful. God didn't intend us to do this alone. And then if you look at verse 23, we get our second exhortation. Verse 23, read with me, says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful so our, our second exhortation, let us hold fast this confession of hope without wavering. Why? Not because we're super faithful, because God is faithful to us, right? So it means that because Jesus truly did come and he truly was God and the perfect Savior dying a criminal's death on a cross, paying for our sin, resurrecting three days later, triumphant, right? Jesus is the triumphant reigning king of the universe. He holds us in his hand because that's true, we have an unwavering hope because in Christ, your circumstance doesn't change that Jesus is triumphant. 
your suffering, your feelings, no matter what we're going through, none of that changes the reality that Jesus has conquered sin and death and suffering, and he holds the keys to eternal life, and by his grace, he welcomes all into his presence if they would trust in him, right? That's our unwavering hope. Can't be taken away. And is that something, is that reality? I mean, think about that, y'all. Like, that's true. Like, is that where we're placing all of our hope? Or is our hope kind of found in our circumstance and our feelings? And yeah, I guess Jesus did something 2,000 years ago, but how does that really affect where I'm at right now? Now, we have this hope that's unwavering. It can't be taken away. And that reality, as we cling to that, as we draw near to that together, it actually draws others into that same sort of love as well. And that leads us to our third exhortation, verses 24, 25, read with me. It says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the third exhortation, let us stir up one another to love and good works. I don't know about y'all, but when I hear stir up one another, it sounds kind of weird, like, right? Like, it's not language we use, stir up one another. But simply what this means is, how are we motivating one another to love more? Or in response to God's sacrificial love for us, how are we extending that love in a way that's actually cultivating that love in those around us, right? And so I get it. That's what this means biblically. As I was praying about this, I was like, God, how have I seen this firsthand in my own life through our church family? The first story that came to mind was an older couple in our church. Uh, He's an elder. She serves most Sundays. They're this amazing couple. They live modest, humble lives, just like a lot of us, right? They're, They're comfortable. God has provided, but they're not rich by any means, but in response to God's grace, in response to the abundance he's placed in their lives, two Christmases ago, they said, we want to bless the City Light staff team, and we want to give each of them $100 cash as a gift. There's about 20 of us on staff at the time, so you do the quick math, $2,000. Now, I don't care who you are, that's a lot of money to just give as a Christmas gift out of the joy of your heart, Right? And they wrote us this beautiful letter about a time a couple had blessed them in that way. And actually, the couple that blessed them in that way stirred up this desire for them to extend that. And we had a breakfast together. I remember sitting there, and tears are in my eyes uh, because I'm just so in awe of them. And and I'm not tearing up because I got $200 because my wife's on staff. Like, that that wasn't the reason. Uh, Though $200 was good, that wasn't the reason I was tearing up, okay? But I was tearing up because I was saying, wow. In response to God's love, they, they sacrificially loved so much. It was extended to them, so it stirred up that desire, and then it stirred up that desire in me. I said, I want to give freely like that. I want to sacrificially love others. It stirred me up to love and good works. Another story uh, that I thought of as I was preparing this text is a student in our church uh, who serves so faithfully every Wednesday in the high school ministry. Uh, he, he's actually in this room right now. I'm not going to say who he is because he doesn't do it for that reason. He doesn't do it for recognition. Uh, but he serves faithfully every single Wednesday. He comes. He picks up high school students. He stays late. He drops them off at home. He takes them to Taco Bell. He buys their meals. He loves them so well. And he got to build this relationship with a student who was, just came from a hard home life. And he ended up at the JDC, Juvenile Detention Center, right? And this college student, he goes every single week down to the JDC, enters and hangs out with this high school student for an hour and a half and just talks about Jesus and shares about the hope that we have in the gospel. And I know with certainty that this student does that for no other reason 
then he's experienced God's sacrificial love, and he wants to extend that to others. And we had him over for dinner on Friday night. He actually shared how on Christmas Day, he went down to hang out with this student and celebrate Christmas. And, and it was that Christmas that this kid that he, he loves and has built a relationship with, it was the first time he got a gift in four Christmases, and it was like chapstick and body wash. And he felt so loved by it, right? And as I see college students, as I see people giving in those ways, it stirs up this desire for me to want to extend that love as well. And what I love about both of those stories is that both of them, all of them in, in those stories are just normal, ordinary people. Nothing super special about them, like you and me, right? Just common people that love Jesus, and they want to extend that love because they've received it, right? And not only do people get to be the recipients of that love, but there's this ripple effect. It doesn't end with the recipient, but it produces this love in others around them to say, in response to God's grace, we want to live that out. It's beautiful, right? And that's what this verse is talking about. So City Light, I just want to ask you, family, in what ways might God be calling you to sacrificially give of your, your time and your resources and your gifts to outdo one another in love and good works? And not just because we want to be obedient to God, right, and live the life and experience all that he has for us, but that this sacrificial love might be produced right here in our family. Consider that. I just want to encourage you guys. It's such a beautiful gift. How might we give? How might we outdo each other in love and good works? And uh, I love, what I love about these exhortations is that all three of them have one thing in common. They begin with let us, right? Let us draw near to God. Let us hold fast. Let us consider. Let us, let us, let us, right? This isn't a solo mission. No, God's adopted us into a family. We get to draw near to him together, hold on to this hope together, love sacrificially together as we center our lives on Jesus. And our passage says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. So God didn't design us to do this alone, but he wants us to pursue him together. And if you've been around City Life for any length of time, you've heard us say the statement, we don't want to be an organization to affiliate with, but we want to be a family to belong to. And we don't just say that because it sounds good. We say that because that's God's heart for his people. God intends for us to meet together, not to neglect to meet together outside of these four church walls, to be a family that encourages one another, reminds them of the hope that we have in the gospel, right? This Christian fellowship that you might hear talked about often, it wasn't thought up by man. It was actually intended and designed by God. Christian fellowship is God's beautiful design. And the primary way that we live this out at City Light is through our city groups. That's why we, you hear them talk about, that's why we talk about them all the time, right? City groups. That's how we live out God's heart, his design, and also through serving in different ways. So if you've trusted in Christ, God's word would actually call us to actively participate in his beautiful and broken and messy and not always easy family called the church. That's what the church is. And I just want to admonish, encourage us, might we not neglect this? Might we not neglect God's design to live together as his family? And I could affirm story after story, looking around this room, if I took the time and actually paused, I just saw five of y'all I could affirm right now, <laughs> two seconds. Story after story of this being lived out, it's beautiful. I just want to encourage you guys in that. Let us continue. Let us continue to live in this way in response to God's love, right? 
But there's also many people in this room that maybe haven't taken that step of faith. And I just want to lovingly ask you, what's keeping you from diving in? What's keeping you from, from diving in and serving? What's keeping you from joining a city group and truly experiencing God's family? And I know that some of those barriers that maybe just came to your mind are valid. Sacrificing time. Maybe you're an introvert. Maybe it's scary to go and meet other people. I don't know what it is. I know that it is a sacrifice, but I also know that it's so worth it. And if we want to live lives that glorify God, his word would say we can't neglect to meet together and encourage one another. So I just want to encourage us towards that. And then the next part of our passage actually gives us this warning that if we neglect to meet together as God's family, this is a warning that we might drift from God. Uh, So if you guys pick back up with me, verse 26, I'll start there. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think? will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Uh, So our second point that we draw from the text is a warning on drifting from God. So verse 26 says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice of sin. All right, so this is a big warning, right? Like the next verse goes on to talk about a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire. Like, thank you, Mo and Austin, for letting me preach this week, right? Like, letting the young buck get up here. But for real, like this passage is weighty, right? Like, this passage is giving a warning about the wrath of God that remains on people who may have accepted some facts about Christianity, but rejected Jesus as their Savior. That's what this passage is giving a warning about. So it's probably super important and loving to to look and say, what does this passage mean? So we'll start with, what does it mean to go on sinning deliberately? Because if that's what this warning is about, we need to understand what this passage is saying. And the first thing that I want to point out is it says, go on sinning. So it doesn't say if you sin once, it doesn't say if you sin twice, it doesn't say every couple weeks, it doesn't say if you struggle with sin, it says if we go on sinning. So it's this continuous state of being unrepentant, meaning that there's this continuous lack of desire to honor God, to turn from your sin and rest in his grace. It doesn't mean just that you struggle, but it means that there's this continued pattern of sin. You don't even desire to honor God, not to earn his love, but in response to his grace, there's no desire to respond from him and turn from your sin. Now, the second thing I want to point out is this word deliberate. So this same Greek word, track with me here, same Greek word that's translated as deliberate right here is translated as willingly in 1 Peter 5.2. 1 Peter 5.2 says this, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, same word, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So this passage here in 1 Peter is talking about a pastor shepherding his flock in a joyful capacity, willingly. And we see that there's these two wills there, right? 
Like the pastor can shepherd a flock under compulsion, under corrupt desires for selfish gain. And then a pastor can shepherd his flock eagerly and joyfully and loving and delighting in the work that God has called him to do to give oversight of God's family and joyfully and willingly, as it says, and eagerly shepherding the flock. That's the same word that it gives us in Hebrews 10.26, that second sort of will that's eager, that's excited, that delights, that's engaged in that activity of sin. That's what it means by deliberate sin. No desire to honor God. It's not talking about earning anything, but in response to his grace, are you resting in it? Are you turning from your sin, growing to look more like Jesus, surrendered to him? That's what this verse is talking about. There's a pastor named Jonathan Pecluda. He's a college pastor down in Texas of a college ministry called The Porch. And he tells a story of a college student coming up to him. And the college student says, hey, JP, I've been really struggling with this pornography addiction. And JP says, dude, I'm sorry to hear that. That's really tough. Uh, where do you actually, where do you look at pornography? And the student replies, well, I actually look at it on my phone. And JP goes, oh man, I'm sorry to hear that. Well, could you tell me where, where you keep your phone? And he says, well, I actually keep it in my pocket and I keep it on my nightstand at night. And JP replies to the student, he says, oh, I'm sorry. I thought you said that you were struggling with sin. You're not struggling with sin. You're, you're playing with it, right? And JP called him out in this deliberate sin. It's okay to struggle with sin. In fact, we will. We'll never be perfect this side of heaven. But by God's grace, we'll keep turning to him. We'll keep trusting in him. We'll keep fighting because his, his grace, his eternal life is free, right? We respond to it. But if it's deliberate, if it's joyfully, if there's no desire to turn and rest in God's grace, this passage would lend itself to say, look at your heart and ask if you truly know Jesus. This is a warning. Do you truly know him, right? Not that you have to earn him, but have you just accepted some facts and rejected your savior? And it says, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, that's what's crazy about this. After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Hear me clearly, not saying a person can lose salvation, but it's a litmus test if a person ever truly had it. So we got to notice it doesn't say after receiving the truth. It says after receiving the knowledge of the truth, right? So meaning they knew about Jesus, but they didn't know Jesus. Makes sense? They knew about him. They didn't actually know him. And this is a gracious and somber warning to say, if you see this deliberate sin, you see this lack of desire to honor God and rest in his grace, it might reveal that you've received some facts about Christianity, but you haven't truly accepted the Savior and surrendered your life to him. That's the gracious warning that this passage gives us. And the reality is that hundreds of people will have come through here this morning. This is the third gathering. Hundreds of people will have walked through these doors today. And the sad reality, as I was praying into this, in all reality, there are people who will have sat in these chairs today who have accepted facts about Jesus but rejected him as their savior. And the most loving thing that I could do since God's word's true, not if it's true, since, since it's true, and he's revealed his will to us, is lovingly say, would you heed this warning? Right, would you heed this warning and look at your heart and the beautiful truth, not I don't wanna be a seven here, but the, the silver lining maybe, is that it's not too late. God desires that all would come to repentance and his grace 
is there for anybody. If you were caught in that deliberate sin, you're, I may, I, maybe I never have trusted in Jesus. The answer isn't clean yourself up. The answer is trust in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for you. Amen? Like he's waiting for you. And verse 29 says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who's trampled underfoot the Son of God? So we all deserve judgment. I mean, uh, Romans 3 talks about we've all fallen short of God's glory. Everyone is guilty. And our passage says, how much more the person who's actually heard about Jesus and denied it? Verse uh, 30 and 31 say, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. God is just, he is righteous, he is holy, and we are not. We're guilty. And this verse is saying it's fearful to remain under that guilt. But God created a way in Jesus Christ for us to not remain under that wrath. And this is a fearful, somber warning. Have we trusted in Christ? And it's saying if you see that deliberate pattern, would you turn? Would you trust in him? And I want to make it clear, this warning is not to say clean up your behavior this warning isn't to make you feel guilty or condemned or to, to preach this fire and brimstone message, but this warning is to say, would you look at your heart and would you ask yourself some honest questions? This is loving. Would you look at your heart and ask yourself, do you truly know Jesus or have you just heard about him? Are you actually a part of God's redeemed, rescued family that will be with him for eternity or are you just attending a family gathering every once in a while? Have you actually been transformed by God's grace, right? Frees us from death and sin, transforms us, dwells in us, lives with us. Have you actually been transformed by that grace? Or is Christianity just kind of a religious checklist? It's this gracious warning. Do you know Jesus? Do you have this abiding hope, right? And for many of us, for all of us, at some point, once or maybe many times, there's going to come a point, there's going to be a fork in a road where we're going to be challenged, we're going to be confronted, maybe with a hard truth, maybe with suffering, maybe with sin, maybe with brokenness, I don't know what it is, but we have to make the option, are we going to follow Jesus? Is he truly better? Is he true? <laughs> is it real? And Am I going to follow him? Is Jesus worth it? Or am I going to go back to my life without him? And God's word would lend itself to say that the decision that you make in that moment reveals where you truly stand with Christ. Have you ever truly known him at all? And the beautiful thing in the weight of this somber warning is God's word doesn't end there. Like that's the bad news, but it's followed by good news that for those who do trust in Christ, have a hope and a grace that we can stand firm in that will never be taken away. Amen? Never. This hope in Christ will never be taken away. Let's finish our passage and see this hope that we can stand firm in. Verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. 
for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Third, final point from the text is an encouragement to stand firm with God. So the author of Hebrews, he reminds the recipients of this book, hey, y'all remember that suffering that you faced when you first believed in Jesus in the gospel. He brings up this former time, and it says that uh, the, the plundering of their property, it says that they were... Uh, They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. And what happened back then is uh, believers in Christ would actually be arrested and thrown in jail for professing faith in Jesus, right? That's the world they lived in. Now, how the prison system worked is they didn't get these great meals, uh, but actually they would just starve to death if loved ones from the outside didn't bring them meals. They would just rot in prison and die. So these believers uh, were bringing their brothers and sisters in Christ's food down to the prison, right? They were connected and they were associated with them. And because of that, their oppressor said, well, they too must be believers, right? Because they're associating with them by bringing them meals to the prison, And because of that, they would plunder their property. So they would literally go and they would steal all of their goods and they would burn down their homes. And our passage says that they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property, not begrudgingly, but joyfully. Isn't that crazy? Like, like imagine that. Like, imagine that in order for you to serve or to love in response to God's love, you leave your house, you're coming to do kids, man. You're like, oh man, I'm killing it today. You know, serving, serving coffee. I got here early, serving the church. And while you left to come love your church family, to love the people sitting in this room, it meant that when you got back home today, your house was going to be burned down. And to extend that sort of love, not begrudgingly, but joyfully, to literally put your neck on the line, to give your life and everything that you have, to stand firm in the faith and to remain joyful. Why and how? What can produce this sort of love, right? And you look at verse 34, and it shows us how, how they did it, how we do it. It says, you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward. So they literally were losing everything, maybe their lives, definitely their possessions, but they stood joyful because they knew that what they possessed in Christ was far greater than what we could possess in this world. So for us, City Light, anything that we possess in this world, any suffering that we're currently faced with, Jesus is so much bigger than that. Amen? Like, he's so much bigger. If we've trusted in Christ, we have this same abiding hope that allowed these believers to lose everything and stand firm in their faith. And I don't know where you guys are at today. I don't know what suffering or struggles or hardship or possessions you maybe are anxious about or fears of the future. I don't know where you're at, but this passage, God's word will lend us to say that the hope that we have in Christ overcomes death cancer, sin, anxieties, fear, depression, that whatever it is, this abiding hope, this better possession that we have in Jesus will allow us to stand firm in our faith no matter where you're at. Praise God for that. Amen? Like, we have a better hope that can't be taken away. And I just wanted to say on the front end, I know that suffering is real. Like, this isn't to nullify the suffering or the brokenness that we face. And it's actually kind of crazy timely. 
this passage in, in my own life. Uh, I'm actually flying out for a funeral of a family member tomorrow, a loved one to us. Just found out they might have stage four cancer the, the, the week that I'm preparing this message, right? And it's not to nullify the suffering. Like, it's not to minimize that. Suffering is real. You might be going through suffering, but this hope that we have in Christ, it doesn't minimize our suffering, but it magnifies our Savior. Amen? Like, your suffering might be big. Our suffering in the near future might be bigger, might, it might grow bigger, but Jesus is bigger than that. Amen? Like, this hope can't be taken away from us. No matter where you're at, we can stand firm in this faith because we have this abiding hope and this better possession. Nothing can take it away. Verse 37, 38, yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. City light, Jesus is coming back. Amen? Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back, all right? Come on, y'all. All All right, he's coming back, just making sure we're on the same page. That is a reality. John 14, 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. If I go to prepare a place for you, which he did on the cross through his death, then surely I will come and bring you to be with myself. If I go and prepare a place, if I die for your sins, if I go and ascend as the king of the universe, surely I will come and bring my children to be with me. Jesus is coming back. This is real. This is the abiding hope that we have. I heard an elder in our church not long ago say, Andrew, things have been difficult, but you know what? In a hundred years, none of it will matter. I'll be in the presence of God forever. What can touch that hope? What circumstance, what, what feeling, what can take away from that hope? It's not to diminish it, but nothing can take that away. And the book of Hebrews, again, time and time again, shares the same truth. Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. Jesus is worth it. It's true. And the only question for us, City Light, is do we believe that's true? Like, do we actually believe that nothing can take our hope and our confidence away, that we have this assurance of faith in King Jesus, our Lord. He reigns victorious, amen? He is king. He reigns victorious. He's our living hope presently and forever. Right now we have it, right now. For his believers, he's with us, right? We have it into eternity, right? The truth is that if we believe in this sense, this is true, no matter what your struggle is, we can stand firm in our struggle because we can stand firm in our Savior. And verse 39 ends, but we're not those who shrink back uh-uh, and are destroyed, but are those who have faith and preserve their souls. So this faith isn't something you earn. It's not something you conjure up. It's not something you work harder for. But this faith is something that you possess in King Jesus because he's rescued you. We possess it. And Ephesians 2 said, It is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is a gift from God. God's grace has rescued us and it will sustain us. Philippians 1 6, He who began a good work in you will see it to completion. God's going to hold you, right? This is our insurance. John 10 28, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Right? You are held in God's hand in Christ. Nothing 
can separate you from that love. Nothing. Death, cancer, sin, anxiety, fear, depression. Nothing can pluck you from God's hand. And in closing, I just want to lovingly ask, do you know that Jesus? Or do you just know about that Jesus? Like, are you actually a part of God's eternal family through turning from your sin, trusting in his grace? Or have you just been coming to a family gathering? Have you been transformed by him? Or is Christianity a religious checklist? And if there is a deliberate sin, if there has been a lack of desire to honor God, and as you look at your heart, you say, maybe this reveals that I don't really know Jesus. Would you know that's not condemnation? That's not, hey, try harder or be better. It's, hey, would you come to the Savior that gave everything to give you eternal life? Would you turn from your sin and trust in him? And if you do know Jesus, let us be encouraged, right? Let us draw near to God together, amen? Rescue to a family. We don't have to do this alone. We have this hope together, right? God's rescued us into a family. We draw near to him, but we get to do so together, encourage one another. How might we continue to do that? Would you take a step of faith, dive in, and might we, I just want to leave us with this question, might we continue to ask ourselves in response to God's sacrificial, unmerited love, free in Christ Jesus, in response to that, not to earn anything, in response, how might we outdo one another love and good works? How, how might we sacrificially give to produce this sort of love in each other? And could you imagine, just think for a moment, that God's church, God's family lived this out? Like, could you imagine if in response to his grace, this is just what we were marked by, loving one another and loving our city, how might God use that to transform lives, to transform us, right? Would we never stop considering that? Would we draw near to God together? Uh, let us pray.